Welcome to the Royale Political Wire. This is Stephen Smith. I am the producer of the show in conjunction with, of course, the Royale and Nexus DL. I am joined by our host, local woman Maureen Hanlon. Hello. <laughs> also, Michael Allen of all sorts of things in this town. And a very special guest, our neighboring alderman from the 15th Ward, Megan Green. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. We are talking to Megan about a variety of issues, but we're going to dive in headfirst into a decision she's made, but not as rapidly or with as much consequence (laughs) as she's going to face. Megan has declared her candidacy for president of the Board of Aldermen running against incumbent President Louis Reed, who's held the post since 2007 and declared candidate State Senator Jamila Nasheed of the 5th District. Yeah, it's all in the Democratic primary so far. We don't know who else may surface or emerge. We also have no idea who's running as a Republican or a Libertarian <laughs> or a Green, but that's for later. There will be one, I'm There's sure. There's one Green so far. <laughs> not Green on the Democratic ticket. <laughs> so... I guess I want to ask you something that is, is, is going to wind up into a question. There, you know, I'm an academic. I teach and I go to conferences and sometimes there's always like, it was, is there a question mark at the end of that <laughs> during the Q&A? But I think, you know, you've been on the board of aldermen for a little while. You finally got elected to a full four-year term after mm-hmm. two short-term stints. You three. Three elections. Three, that's right. Three elections in, what, two, two years? Two and a half years, yes. Two and a half mm. years. And you were frequently here at the Royale with debates. <laughs> yes. So you're no stranger to, to the patrons of this establishment. Not at all. Um you're also, you know, very well known in social media, national media, even for your your activism and your engagement. But at the board, you are new still, mm-hmm. and there are people on that board. I, I forget now who the most seniority is accrued to is a Terry Kennedy, mm-hmm. who was elected in 1989. But for years, right. it, you know, it had been Phyllis Young. Before that, I think mm-hmm. 81. It's like the year after I was born. Um, it's an institution that doesn't change very fast and has suddenly had to absorb a lot of newer and younger voices, including yourself. It's also an institution that has tended to elect presidents who have spent some time getting to know its ways, its rules, mm-hmm. and its committee structure, like Francis Slay, who had mm-hmm. served as an alderman for 10 years before he ran for president of the board. Um, Jim Shrewsbury, who had been on the board for... Uh, I think, you know, 15 years or so before he ran, Lewis Reed was on for six years. Um, no, sorry, eight years. Um, but you've, you have a few years, mm-hmm. not, not many at this point, and you've jumped in against the incumbent, against a state senator. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, have seen that the aldermanic system is about waiting your turn. So... You stand in line. You know your call, colleague from the twenty fourth ward, Scott Ogilvie, ran as an independent, ran again as a Democrat in order to get in that line because mm-hmm. someday maybe you'll become committee chair, and maybe someday you become floor leader. Maybe someday you're a viable candidate for presidency because usually only aldermen run for that. Although Tom Villa, a longtime member of the board of aldermen, actually started as president before he ever became an alderman. Maybe that's a good order to do it in, actually, <laughs> to master the system before you become a, a bit player. Um, 
I guess my point is, you know, there's, there's a, something that Bell Hooks wrote uh, that, I, that I like. It's like, since loving is about knowing we have more meaningful love relations, relationships when we know each other and it takes time to know each other. And this is in a completely different context that she wrote this, but it's all about the value of intimacy. Um, so jumping from 15th Ward Alderman with a few years to president seems to maybe foreclose some of that, but you see it differently. And I kind of want to just hear your open-ended reason why you're running now sure. in your mm -hmm. career. Sure. And what you think you might do to to love your colleagues if you become president. How do you build these kinds of bonds of trust? Mm -hmm. So I, I think a number of things here. I think you, you raised some, some good points. The city of St. Louis right now is in a place where we are screaming for change. And we are screaming kind of this next generation, this millennial generation that is now the, the largest uh, population. I'm, I'm one of them, too. Um, saying that, that we need a political system that is responsive to our views. That we need a political system that is... Um, thinking about the future, that is bringing forth bold ideas, that is starting at a place of yes, we can, rather than no, we can't. And and those are things that I've, you know, recognized from being at the board that, yes, we, we've done things the same way for a very long time. And we've got into a place as a city where we're functionally bankrupt. We have uh, crime levels that are, you know, nationally known for how bad they are. And we have infant mortality rates that rival developing nations. We have racial and economic inequalities that are some of the worst in this country, yet we continue to double down on the same thinking and the same policies that got us into the places that we are now. And I think for a lot of us in the middle, millennial generation, we're just saying these issues are too urgent to continue to do the things that we've always done. And, um, and for me, kind of being in this place where you know, from, from the time that I, I ran for office, you know, I've always been an activist. And, and I think part of um, being an activist is wanting to see uh, emergent or, or urgent change and feeling that we have missed a number of opportunities over the last year or last few years. I mean, I, I got elected, you know, shortly after Michael Brown was killed. And we have done very little as a board and as a city to live up to any of the things that the Ferguson Commission report's asking us to do, to implement any of the things that um, the Forsake of All report is saying that we, we need to do to fix some of our systemic issues in the city. And, and I think a lot of that is because we're stuck in this place with our leadership where it's, okay, play nice, wait your turn, um, this is just how things are done, and so you know, keep quiet about it and, and move on. Um, but that's what's gotten us to where we are. And I think that's why it's so important that we have different leadership that is willing to embrace new ideas, that is willing to be welcoming to people who weren't brought up within the political system, that, that you know, weren't born and raised necessarily in St. Louis or in the city or, or whatever, um, and, and create a St. Louis that really is looking toward the future and not so held back by these past divides. And, and I think that there's an, an urgency there, and that's a lot of the reason that I'm running. What are your top three issues? 
So three things. Um, you know, number one has to be uh, looking at crime. Um, but it has to be doing it from addressing the root causes of crime, right? So we're at a place where we we passed another sales tax increase this this past uh, November, something that I did not support. Um, because right now we are the sixth highest staffed police department in the country. When you add in our administrative staff, we're the third highest staffed. Uh, and our our way to address crime in the, the city continues to be more police more surveillance, and it's not working. And the reason it's not working is because we spend 0.03% of our budget right now on health and human services. And we continue year after year after year to cut affordable housing, to cut um, the health department, to cut these things that are also getting cut at the state level, are also getting cut at the federal level, and basically taking away the entire social safety net, and then expecting that our crime levels are going to go down. It's it's not going to happen. And so we have to reconfigure the way that we look at public safety. We have to recognize that we need to be putting money into prevention. And that looks like having social workers um, in our police departments so that um, folks that are experiencing difficulties from being in poverty or mental illness or substance abuse are getting the, the services that they need to keep them out of the criminal justice system. Second thing, uh, tax incentive reform. You know, we're, we're at a place at a city where, um, like I said, we are, are functionally bankrupt. We are looking at uh, selling off or long-term lease is, is the way that kind of the powers that be like to sell it, um, our airport, basically because we have such budgetary constraints. And, uh, you know, last year we cut, I think, $17 million from the budget. It's looking like another $14 million in cuts. This year, possibly more. Um, but at the same time, we're experiencing this unprecedented growth, right? But only in a certain part of our city and, um, and to the detriment of our tax base. You know, the, the thing, you know, with TIFs and tax abatements is they're supposed to um, satisfy a but-for test that not only this project, but no similar project is likely to occur here if not for this tax incentive. And so often you need that tax incentive for the first, maybe second project that go into an area. But once you've gotten to a place where it is built up the way that much of our central corridor is, you have to turn off the spigot. And um, because those projects are bringing in new people, they are using city resources. Um, they do require that we are picking up trash and paving roads and all of the, all of these things. And so they they need to be paying their fair share. But I think the third piece um, for me is campaign finance and ethics reform, mm. because the 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 tax incentive reform doesn't happen without changing the way we fund campaigns in the city. You know, you look back at the mayor's race that we had. Um, a little over a year ago, and little over two-thirds of the money that was spent in that race came from developers and related industry. We don't get tax incentive reform. We don't change that until we change the people that are funding campaigns. And so, you know, I want us to move to a publicly financed campaign system, something um, like a voucher system perhaps like they do in, in Seattle where every person in the city would get a a voucher that they're able to spend on uh, the political candidates of their choice. And that forces candidates to have to interface with voters, not special interests. Um, and it makes us more accountable to the people that we're elected to serve. And, and so those are 
all of those are, are obviously more complicated than than the couple minutes you know I have now to go into it. But <laughs> but that's a starting point. Right. That, that last part doesn't sound very good for the uh, consulting industry, but I'll let Maureen take no. it over. Well, <laughs> just out of curiosity, I mean, so say in terms of the city of St. Louis budgets issues, and this is like a wild hypothetical and that there's no chance of this <laughs> happening. But let's say right now we were to turn off all tax abatements, right? Just like none. I do so, not advocate for. Yeah, right. So, so wait, And I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, you advocate okay. for it. Yeah. I'm saying if that were to happen, how far would that go to solving the budgetary issues that our city's facing? I mean, I... Because I, I think some... I think that, that, you know, I think other people have maybe argued that the loss of the tax base or, you know, kind of declining population or those things are, create some kind of serious budgetary constraint that just tax, like just fixing tax abatements alone won't help. And I'm wondering your perspective on like, is the real problem tax abatements? Like if we, if, if tax abatement reform goes through, does that solve our budgetary issues? It doesn't solve it. It's a piece of it. I mean, we, we have to also look at pensions. I mean, the, the two biggest things on our budget right now are, are our pension obligations and our TIF debt. Mm-hmm. Those are, you know, those are the two areas that are, are causing us some, some restraint. Uh, I mean, I don't think you can't turn it off. Um, right. You know, overnight. I, but I think that you ha- we have to be more strategic with our allocation, and and part of that goes back to the lack of citywide planning, and um, and because so these decisions are made on a ward by ward basis, mm-hmm. and not. Um, in terms of a citywide plan of, okay, in this area of the city, you can qualify for X amount of incentive, but once this area hits this threshold in terms of, you know, population or income or or whatever we set those metrics at, that's when you start to turn off the spigot. Because we end up in a place right now where it provides a disincentive to go into areas that are underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a disincentive to uh, go into... uh, you know, parts of North City, if yeah. you can get a, a 10, 15-year tax abatement in the central mm-hmm. corridor where you know that it's desirable to live and you're going to fill it and you can charge rents of $1,500 a month and, and all of these things. So um, right. so I, I think the key is really having a citywide strategic plan, a, a vision around it, and not kind of this hodgepodge, um, you know, group of, of policies that we have now. I, I would follow up that say though that um, the current incentives are really um, following where where capital wants to go um, and I, I sat down with a mm. potential client today in my professional practice he said that North St. Louis needs patient money and that was a very good phrase mm-hmm. that a lot of investors aren't investing there mm. because they, the return isn't there right. yet and it'll be a slow return yes. um, but a lot of South Saint neighborhoods were in the same position some 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 30, 40 years ago. Um, and some people were patient and saw it through. But it's So I say this to say to kind of point it, like if we do restrict it to certain areas and private capital isn't coming, mm. then what? Um, and this is just to, to kind of raise the devil's advocacy view that so I think I, Mayor Cruzen would say is that capturing this capital as it flows now where it wants to flow and, and using incentives to direct it to other gain somehow benefits the whole city do you reject that hypothesis that a cortex or a a 100 north king's highway or Mm. you know projects in shaw and tower grove south don't somehow add 
jobs, money. Or money, and population that benefits everyone? See, I, I think that's the hypothesis that right. we've had for 20 years, and we haven't you know, seen it bear out, right? Well, we, our revenues we, are declining, right. our population is declining, declining. Yeah. Right. jobs decline. Yeah, we're still using that same so, kind of excuse. Right. And, but and do you, you don't think we're turning a corner... In terms of population well, or in all terms of things, investment? Because I think I mean, that's I, something that the current mayor would probably mm, or has, I, did argue on the Board of Aldermen that, okay, we are, we're getting somewhere And, and I do agree. Yeah. I, I do agree. I think that in the Central Corridor, we have turned a corner. The, mm. the investment that we are seeing there is, is great. And you have to turn off the spigot. Right. Like you said, capital will go there because it's a desirable right. area. And so to continue to subsidize um, particularly not affordable options for housing, things that are, are driving up rents in that area that are making it harder for people who have lived there for a long time to stay, and without having requirements that there's inclusionary zoning with these projects or, um, or setting up affordable housing funds that are associated with them to stabilize rents in surrounding uh, properties so that people don't get displaced. Like that's what responsible development looks like, and and so I think it's a balance. You know, you get to, uh, you start projects where you need to have that incentive, mm-hmm. but once you get a certain number that are successful, that you know they're making their bills, they're they're. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of vacancy in the building. They're leased mm-hmm. up pretty quickly. They have, you know, first floor retail that, that wants to be there. And there's the ability to show investors that this is a successful project. Then you turn off the spigot. Mm-hmm. And then you require the private market just to take over. Um, and then you incentivize it in other areas until the private market is ready to take over. But our, our job can't be to subsidize um, profits off the backs of taxpayers and that that's what's happening right now is is we are you know our city services are suffering because we don't have the tax revenue to to operate Mm -hmm. yet we are um yet these developers are making a tremendous amount of of money off these deals there has to be a balance there how do we break that chain and this gets to another question of leadership on the board of Mm -hmm. alderman because a lot of people voice support for a reform. A lot of people in the, the sort of progressive political community voice mm-hmm. that. But if you look at the average Friday agenda of a Board of Aldermen meeting, mm-hmm. you know, two-thirds of the bills on second reading for perfection are for tax mm-hmm. abatements. And it's not just Joe Rody. It's also Christine Gracia, Shane Cohn, Kara Spencer, Scott Ogilvy, Megan Megan Green, Green. yeah. Uh, and it's like, so what's this disconnect? We have will, but not a way, or do we not have enough will? What's going so on? I, or I is this something where a new president of the board could make a difference? I, I think it's it comes down to leadership, mm-hmm. right? You know, so in the 15th Ward, we tried to be more responsible with our development, and we were shut down by the leadership of the board. Um, we tried to, to allow our community to negotiate a community benefit agreement mm-hmm. that required um, basically the creation of affordable housing alongside um, market rate. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what development should look like, Uh, particularly if you are getting tax incentive. There should be an affordability component or there should be, you know, a fund going back to the schools or, or, you know, there's a number of things that you can negotiate in these things. Mm -hmm. So we tried to 
to set that standard. Mm -hmm. um, something that is done in a lot of other cities. And we were shut down for trying to do that. And I think that goes back to leadership because you, if, if there is a benefit to to certain funders of campaigns, to certain, uh, you know, to to keep the system as is, then when somebody tries to interject doing something new into that system, it, it's perceived as a threat. And um, and then the I think the bullying happens, mm -hmm. the the posturing happens, um, and new ideas get shut down. But I think when you have different leadership who is willing to say, you know what, these these bills. Um, you know, instead of stopping bills that are trying to be innovative and trying to do things right, you know, maybe the answer is to slow down bills um, that don't have those requirements, that don't have affordable housing set aside, that don't have inclusionary zoning, that don't um, that that demonstrate through the financial analysis that um, that they really don't need the level of incentive that that they're getting. Um, but I. The, the president of the board controls the flow of legislation through the board. And um, and so in that ability, they they have, that person has right. the ability to kind of dictate the movement of mm -hmm. these bills and, and what is in them. But above that, it seems like as long as it's kind of this individuated system where everybody thinks, well, if I don't give it my war, the project mm -hmm. might happen in another war. Right. But and it shouldn't be that What's really way. needed is a reform package plan. and that – but who will could lead that kind of an effort through 15 votes, passage, and a mayoral signature? Is that the president of the board? The president of the board certainly could. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so so there there's challenges in it, right? Because you you have you know SLDC who uh, theoretically should be kind of that that planning organization that houses whatever you know strategic plan we have for a city um, on that. But that does not mean absent of SLDC not having a citywide plan on you know where certain levels of incentive can be done. That does not mean that the board cannot do something. Mm -hmm. um, we passed a resolution last year um, that, that mandated you know, some changes, um, albeit many of them have not been followed um, with bills that have subsequently passed through the board, and that's one of the problems with resolutions. They're not binding. Mm -hmm. And um, what really needs to happen is there's an actual legislative effort that is put in, you know, a working group, a subgroup, subcommittee, probably of the HUDS committee is created that specifically focuses on what does a citywide plan look like. Mm. Um, and getting, you know, aldermen representing different areas of the city around that table, having public comment throughout the city, and coming forth with a real plan um, while working with some of the, the experts that are out in the community right now, um, particularly at some of our universities who have been trying to inform us at the board on how we can do this more responsibly. Um, and putting that into a plan that we're then um, that is then passed through legislation mm -hmm. and we're required to adhere to. Mm -hmm. and, it, and I think, you know, doing that also takes away subjectiveness mm -hmm. for, um, for developers, right? So if you, the way the system is set up right now, you know, you could expect very different things depending upon the ward that you're, you're trying to work on. Right. Um, and the but for test seems to be right. but for enough aldermen voting for this, this incentive right. and won't right. be granted. And, so and I was going to say, I mean, so my understanding of the cost benefit analysis, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but the, the issue with the, the, what you were talking about, about your attempt in Tower Grove South to do a different model is that 
there was criticism that there was, in fact, some self-interest in that deal itself, right? And, and doesn't that kind of go to the idea that individual, Michael's point, that individual-based reform, th that there needs to be a, a kind of neutral systemic effort rather than... And, and I agree. I mean, there should be a citywide level. I, I think that that criticism is very unfair. Um, and the reason I think it's unfair is because, you know, we brought in an outside facilitator to help organize the neighborhood, the, the groups, um, you know, constituents within the, the, the groups, the business district and our neighborhood association um, kind of put forth their people that they wanted to sit in this commission um, and negotiate with the developer. And we had a facilitator. It was not led by me. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that, that kind of I did was say that yeah. my commitment was I'm not going to move forward yeah. uh, the project until we get... Uh, until the community is on board with this and we get what the community wants from the developer. And, and that's what right. community benefit agreements right. are and that's how they're used in other cities. Um, and so I I think yeah. that's important because the yeah. narrative on CBAs, I think, um, was unfairly targeted um, by some assertions there. So, so can I ask you on a similar note in terms of existing bastions of power, we are, in theory, moving towards redistricting mm -hmm. at the board. And what Not do Not just you, in theory, in law. In law. Law, yeah. law which I believe in. Shout yeah. out <laughs> <laughs> to the Missouri, to, to, to the law. Um, so, I mean, how, what is your proposals that you're working on? How are you currently working on making that process one in which there's not um, either allegations or, you know truth of kind of self-serving serving actions on different people's parts how would you like to see that moving so, forward and what are you doing about that so provided that it does go through um i know that there are efforts underway right now to collect the signatures to send it back to the ballot and do you support um, those and i do support those efforts you do um and the reason i support them is because i i think that unless we get um a handful of things in place that i'm gonna i'll talk about okay. next um i'm not sure that this is the best idea um, so first off, um, you know, I think one of the, the concerns that I, I hear a lot, um, is that North city will be even more underrepresented in terms of surface area, um, of wards. You know, you look at the 15th ward right now, we're pretty compact cause we're dense. Um, you look at the second ward and it is four times as big in terms of surface area and they get the exact same amount of money that we get to pave all their roads, to pave all their alleys, to replace all their dumpsters, to do all their lighting. It's that right now it's already an unfair system. And so you double the size of a ward without changing the way that we uh, assign ward capital, and it's going to create even more disparity right. between north and south. Is and it so not possible to so change ward capital allocations to more neighborhood-driven capital and then still reduce the number of aldermen? So, so what, you know, theoretically um, could happen, and we tried to do this with the, the bond a couple years ago. Um, when the bond went on, the, the geo bond went on the ballot, one of the things we tried to negotiate at the board was, um, I can't remember, it was like three or 400,000, I think, more in ward capital that was going to go into an infusion. Um, and we tried to amend the bill 
to have that money allocated based upon acreage, mm-hmm. not evenly across wards. And that amendment failed. Uh, yeah, I know. And there so, was opposition. <laughs> there was. Among, and so, and so, not, a, not from large wards, from the smaller, more compact wards, correct. which was so, kind of so the, cruel. So the, so the question becomes, you know, as a board, are, are we willing to do some of the things that we need to yeah. do to make this fair? Based and on we, acreage sounds like and, and one of them is, basic is, strategy. Right, is, mm. is assign money mm-hmm. um, based upon acreage. I think the, the second thing we have to look at is staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we are cutting in half, then um, then I think that alderman needs to become a full-time position. Mm-hmm. I think that it should be paid as a full-time position. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. I think that there needs to be staff um, for every ward. And I think for wards that have higher vacancy rates, higher crime rates, um, more compounding issues, they need to have more staff. Um, the fact that we have one legal... Um, person and, and a, a legal analyst and a financial analyst at the board and, and half those times those positions haven't even been filled um, we are severely understaffed to be able to um, really do our job as a board so so I think that that needs to change as well and um, and then I think the third thing we have to look at is that campaign finance system every campaign I've I've run I've been the grassroots candidate you know, I've been funded by those $25 donations from a lot of, of people, not by, you know, big developers and, and corporations and, and things like that. And Wait. and I think that when you have a war, when you're running for an area that's twice as big, yeah. it makes it a lot harder for that grassroots candidate to get elected and a lot easier for the candidate um, who is backed by mm-hmm. by big money I have some to get elected. Oh, I mean, sorry, just a really quick question of clarification. Are you saying that? Your campaign, you you envision the campaign finance reform as being linked to the ward reduction. Like without this campaign finance idea, you wouldn't support a ward reduction. I would have a hard time supporting it without it well, because I, I I think it makes it a lot easier for mm-hmm. or a lot harder for the grassroots candidates to get elected and a lot easier for the big money candidates to get elected. Well, I'll speak a little bit from my own experience here that uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case if you've seen some old guard that's been able to stay in by about 250, 300 votes. Let's look back at the old 20th Ward. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of grassroots candidates unable to break through that. Yeah. And also when you have an alderman like that who would perhaps be highly influential in a community benefit agreement that might be proposing things in a community benefit agreement that might be abused mm-hmm. quite heavily. And how do we safeguard against those things? Because the kind of things that they were bringing up were um, proposed were actually illegal. And uh, a lot of you know unusual things were being done that way, and this guy was able to stay mm-hmm. in office with about 250 votes. You, know? you could argue that he was grassroots, or you could argue that he was old mm-hmm. guard. Right, and I think right. that's the that's the the black mirror of Seattle's <laughs> politics is that mm-hmm. is it the fulfillment of local democracy or mm. the corruption of democracy? Because a, a lot of people entrenched in the system who are benefiting argue this is democracy, and the people who uh, feel like it's not benefiting them will will rally against it. Right, mm-hmm. so those two hundred fifty votes seem democratic to those who receive those votes but right to a lot of other people not as much um yeah there's just a lot of potential abuse on both sides of the equation here and it's raising up of course with having a larger uh number of people being elected is that you know you'd have a larger 
endorsement by people instead of just a small mm-hmm. amount of mm-hmm. people in there. Right. right. And and I, I think that there, you know, there's we're definitely very outside the norm in terms mm-hmm. of how many wards we have. You know, when I sit on a, a, a board for an organization called Local Progress and mm-hmm. um, and we bring together local progressive elected officials across the country that kind of share and resources. And when I tell them we have twenty eight and a and a population of three hundred and twenty thousand you know the jaws always drop in saying how you know how is that that possible, um, and uh, and so I recognize that we're they're way outside the the norm, and I think that if we don't do this right, that we have um, the potential to create even more inequity than we have right now, and that's what my concern is. And how about touching back on the CBA, uh, and which I could see quite easily as being a person who's in a business of a lot of abuse happening mm-hmm. and a lot of potential illegal things happening. And how, how does that get prevented? Because I could see that easily happening very quickly in the wrong hands. Give us an example. Um, a requirement by an alderman uh, putting cameras on your property that he has access to 24 hours a day. So I will say that that's what's happening now, and those are not CBAs. So they can be incorporated into CBAs. So CBAs are Mm -hmm. community driven. They have to have three Mm -hmm. things. They have to be negotiated by community members, not by elected officials. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to have community needs that were identified through a community engagement process. So again, not needs that an alderman has said, these are things that you have to do. These are things that have been identified by a community as something that they Mm -hmm. need to offset any potential negative thing that, that could happen from, from this. And then the third piece of it is they have to be legally enforceable. Right. And when you look at cities that have, um, that have successfully done CBAs, um, you know, the, they've, they've often tested them out and then ended up with a citywide ordinance to create some standardization around the process. And, uh, you know, you look at what Detroit tried to do, and Detroit had a number of grassroots organizations, equal housing organizations, um, that all got around the table and created something that they brought straight to the ballot box. And then the developers put their own CBA ordinance um, on that same ballot and funded it, and the developer-backed CBA ordinance is what ended up getting passed instead of the one that was pushed by all the folks who were involved in the racial justice work. And the um, and so uh, I think that they lessen it. They actually lessen the amount of, of the type of corruption because they take elected officials out of it. And, yeah, well, I mean, and that's I, the way I, that, I, I, I that's the way that it should be. Because okay. I think we're spending too, too long on this thicket um, on CBAs. <laughs> There are bigger issues on the table. And, and bringing up racial equity, I think we have to have this issue off at the pass. You are running against an African-American mm-hmm. incumbent, and there's a declared African-American candidate. Mm-hmm. You're coming from a, I don't, majority white is the 15th? or We are about 50-50 in terms of white, non-white. Very vote-rich. You know, you have a lot of supporters who are, who are white, middle class, and affluent Southsiders. You have mm-hmm. a lot of supporters who aren't. But you know you're you're a white person running against two black candidates. How mm-hmm. do you countenance that with your own mm-hmm. support for equity and justice and reparations? So first off, I would say that if I didn't think if I thought that either one of those two candidates could create the change that we needed to see in St. Louis, that I would not be in this race. And um, and and I. And I, 
struggled a lot internally because of my, you know, being involved a lot in the protest movement, being involved in in racial justice work. Um, This was something that it took a lot, many months of me going back and forth of of whether I, um, I wanted to do this. But at the end of the day, we need change. Um, and we need to look at the track record of the people in the race who are willing to push the envelope in the way that we need to go. And I think especially when you look at the millennial generation right now, we're, you know, we're all about intersectionality, right? That understanding that we have to simultaneously be standing up for racial justice, economic justice, uh, reproductive justice, environmental justice, immigrant rights, disability rights, um, while also challenging the money that is going into these systems that creates all of this oppression and keeps it in place. And, uh, and for me, the thing that I see that is, is, is missing um, from a lot of this discussion is, is the money piece. And um, for me, you know that I, I will stand up against privatizing the airport um, because of a, an ideological stance about you know, what we, we think should be public goods versus private goods. Um, these are, I, w- I will be, you know, the first to admit, you know, I, I have a lot of privilege. And, um, but I think that the important thing for anybody who is running for any office um, is to be there to listen, um, to be that aspiring ally who is always learning um, from the experiences of others and taking that into uh, making good public policy, even if you aren't a part of that affected class. And, and that's something that is very um, important to me and, um, and something that I, I quite frankly think that anybody who is running for any office um, really needs to put into their decision-making. Right. I mean, it is, it is a... It is a fault line, though, because we had mm-hmm. our first um, African-American mayor, Freeman Bosley Jr., in 1993, second Clarence Harmon, then, you know, since 2001, the mayor's seat has been occupied by the, a white candidate who ran against black candidates, mm-hmm. and now another white candidate who ran against black candidates, Louis Reed, um, is the first permanent, you know, African-American to win a full term to the presidency of the board of aldermen and that was seen as very symbolic um what do you say I, to, to those th- you know the idea right. that there's a symbolism also i and this. i agree i think that there is a symbolism and, and again i i would say that if i i did not think that i was the best person to be able to address the urgency of the issues that we have in this city mm-hmm. um that i wouldn't be in this race and um, that even though I am, I am not uh, African-American, I will never know what it's like to be an African-American person living in our city or in this country. Um, but what I am willing to do and what I think my track record has shown is that I'm, I'm always willing to engage in racial justice work and, and mess up and dive back in and do it again. And because that's, to me, what leadership is. We have to always be learning and developing and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones and to be better people and, and bringing our constituencies along with us, right? We need Southside to be advocating for Northside. 
you know, we can't continue this fragmentation that we've had within the city. And, um, and I think that, that, you know, my, a lot of my constituents in the 15th Ward will, you know, are people who are also engaged in this work and are, are also activists and people who are really working to bridge that, that divide in our city. And, and it does mean that we need people both on the south side and the north side working to bridge those divides. Does the current crop of progressives on the board bridge those divides mm -hmm. effectively? I think we're, with every election, I think we're getting better. Um, I think there's not cohesiveness um, even among progressives about what right. progressive means. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that um, we're struggling with nationally mm -hmm. in terms of you know, everybody wants to be socialist. Can yeah. we say that anymore? <laughs> we, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it's like 70-some percent um, of millennials are, you know, think socialism is good. I think so, that's why I'm a, not so. quite a millennial. <laughs> I am a socialist. I mean, I want, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You're, no, go ahead. I was just, that was a segue to something well, else, I, I hope. I wanted to ask you about the hotbed of real democracy, and that is, uh, hopefully, one could say, um, school boards kind of regionally and locally so first if you had a child where would your child go to school to man elementary right in the 15th ward okay um do you think most people in the 15th ward send their kid to man elementary it's uh i think a little over 60 percent now okay. um of the students attending the school live in the neighborhood okay. and um, what about the kids in the neighborhood? Is there a way to capture which schools they go to? I don't know in totality where, yeah. where they go, but I know, you know, a, five years ago, I think it was about 20% mm. of neighborhood kids went to Mann Elementary, and okay. it has significantly increased in terms of neighborhood uh, kids attending the school. So, what it, so, you know, if I'm correct about where the status of SLPS elected, the, the SLPS school board is, is that there's serious consideration to moving back to elected, and that's what the commission recommended, but it's not finalized yet. Is that correct? or Correct. And okay. there's actually a bill um, that is at the state level that I think is problematic in a couple ways. Um, it would create this essentially hybrid commission um, between the elected and the appointed. But what we heard in the, the kind of public hearings were, was that people wanted to go back to elected. And after the end of those public hearings, um, a determination was made to start to transition back. Um, and I think that, that the, the bill that we have at the state level could actually set us back mm -hmm. in kind of that timeline of transitioning back to, um, to local control. I think we also need to recognize that... Um, it's becoming more common in cities for people to not have local control over their school boards. Mm -hmm. And it is a form of voter disenfranchisement. And I think we need to be looking at it through that lens when we are taking away people's ability to elect who represents them in the district where their, their kids go to school. And, um, and so I, I'm supportive of it going back to the elected board as, as quickly as possible. Are there things that you think need to be in place to make an elected school board essential, or do you think it's like, let's get back to elected and it's going to figure 
but, and it and it'll figure you itself know, out. Our, our elected board, I think, has a lot of really great people in it right now, and they have been going through a ton of professional development and and how to be a school board member and all of these things in anticipation of transitioning back and they've been going through it for years and so i mean i i think that our elected representatives are ready um to take the reins back i think that they um they're not naive to know that it it's um it will be a challenge um and i think that they're they're up to it moving beyond the local Mm. (laughs) to the Uh, spiritual the int well not quite that far (laughs) More of the national picture. The interim census figures came out in late March, and St. Louis now records a population in the city lower than its census count in 1870, Mm. 308,000 residents. The St. Louis region had Mm -hmm. 656 residents move in, according to these figures, (laughs) making the the regional population the same as it's been basically since the 1980 Mm. census. Yet when these figures came out, um, suggesting we're not growing, we have the, the regional chamber being quoted. Oh, we actually are growing. We have Amazon. We have these jobs being created. Mm-hmm. But by all measures, we are stagnant, and the city mm-hmm. is shrinking. It's not only its own in the region, a stagnant region and a shrinking city. What, what are the moves we are failing to make? Or, as some pundits on this census figure mm-hmm. suggest, it's just hopeless for these older Rust Belt cities to compete mm-hmm. against the West and the Southwest. Is that true? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. And where should we be looking? What should we be doing? So, I mean, so a couple of things. City-county merger? St. Louis needs to be more progressive with our policies. And, and by that, I mean more welcoming, inclusive. In the 15th Ward, we have a a lot of transplants, a lot of people who move here for school or for you know their first job out of, of college, and they'll move here from the coast and they'll say, you know what, I just, I never felt like I was welcomed here. And I never felt like people were trying to do things that were innovative here or that I could break into the political system here or the social system here or whatever it is. We need to fix that. Right. And I will you know, say, to give you credit, you are a, uh, a, I, a transplant. I broke into the I and, broke and, in. And you're, you're running against an incumbent transplant, Louis yeah. Reed. So yes. maybe there is some progress here. So, so and, I, and our current mayor is a transplant. So. And I think that those are things you know, we, have to, we have to look at, is, is how, do we, how do we emulate some of the good things that are happening in these other cities? Because our, our problems really aren't unique. No, we, you know, I, I talk to council members who are in, you know, Minneapolis or Chicago or Indianapolis or Memphis, and we're all dealing with the same things. You know, we're all dealing with how do you how do you build in a, a way that keeps your tax base in uh, in place and and keeps affordable housing or develops affordable housing. We're all dealing with um, police and community relations. We're all dealing with the influence of, of corporate money and special interests um, into the local political system. These are, these are things that every single major city is dealing with. What is unique to St. Louis is our stubbornness in uh, adopting things that are working in other cities. And um, we tend to start as, at a place of no rather than yes and 
and it's not just no it's no and right. here are all of the reasons and the excuses and then, and then when we go yes it's it's like a WTF, yes, like privatize the, the airport, airport or right. give, give, give the St. Louis Rams everything they want, it's even like, though we know they're just using us against Los this, Angeles. This is what we've the one chosen. That got away, Paul, Ma- Paul McKee, <laughs> let's give him 1,500 The Rams acres. just weren't that into it's, us, and we could never respect ah. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that's True a really though. good example. You know, the thing that we're choosing to be innovative on is or the thing we're choosing to want to lead the country right. on it is airport privatization. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the place we need to start is, you know, we've made national news over and over and over again for our response to the protests, for the number of people who have been killed hmm. by police in our city. We have a whole list of, uh, of things that the Ferguson Commission tells us that we need to do. Mm-hmm. That's where we need to start. And then we get on the news. We get on the national news for the right reasons. You look at the DA in Philadelphia right now, has been in there since January, and has already said that he's not uh, prosecuting marijuana, that he is eliminating cash bail for nonviolent offenses, and he is requiring everybody in the prosecutor's office to provide a fiscal note when they try somebody that has the cost associated with incarceration versus the cost of taking somebody out Uh of uh, out of the economy like that is is things that we can and should do the kind of innovative policy that then puts us on the national news for the right reasons and makes people say hey st louis is is actually getting its act together it's a place we want to go would you say that you are directly calling on circuit attorney kim Gardner to do some of those things i would love our yeah. circuit attorney to do some of those things but i i, I think it's not just her responsibility too mm. i mean larry krasner has uh, a city council that will back him up on it and i and i think that can't be ignored either you know elected officials don't want to act out on an island right no. they they need to know that they um that you know, there's a board there to protect them or there's a mayor there or the citizenry or whatever it is, um, you know, there to have their back when making some of these bold um, decisions. But I think you see for, for right. the DA in, in Philadelphia, it's it's paying off already for right. him. In, in local politics lately, it seems like, just to pull it now back to local, that mm. some people who are trying to change things feel like, it's not even that they don't have the resources of the system, but their own political party, the only political party that right. wins office of the Democratic Party, doesn't have their back. And mm. this mm-hmm. came to the forefront with the eighth board race, with mm-hmm. the, the controversy over the nomination. Um, some have said maybe there's almost two political parties effectively within the Democratic Party, um, and that the Central Committee is no longer seen as really the big tent anymore but Mm -hmm. maybe a faction among factions so what do you think the future of a a party like the democratic party is on a local level in a city like st louis where we have we're going to have contested primaries and they're going to be between different flavors of policy agendas and different temperaments Mm. that used to maybe seem to fit in one party but now increasingly don't or maybe the whole party process is just a diversion from more direct participation. I mean, we could see in high turnout races in the 8th and the 15th in the future, um, not to prophecy competition for you, but, you know, 
it might not just be two candidates. It could mm-hmm. be four or five, right. lots of people wanting to participate, right? Which is the reason I think we need ranked choice voting. Okay. And, and there's there's a ballot initiative underway right now to collect the signatures and mm. um, and put it on the ballot that would create that, Can that you instant. Can describe that for people? So ranked choice voting, it's also called instant runoff voting. And essentially what it does is you get to rank all the people on a ballot in your order of preference. And mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, the person who's in in last place, their votes will get reassigned to whatever, you know, his, his or her voters voted on first will go to the second. Ooh. And mm. you keep eliminating the person who was last on the ballot until somebody hits 50 percent. Mm-hmm. And um, and so instead of having two elections um, like, a, you know, some other or municipalities and, and states mm-hmm. will do that require a you know a runoff election um it's done instantaneously so it saves the resources so of not no, having no primary in this system uh well it you could do it you with a primary it, okay. you could have an instant oh, so runoff for the primary like two democrats and two republicans running that's not what you're envisioning no so okay. well so it could be set up in a couple of different ways and i think the the way that the ballot initiative is set up is it still keeps the primary process in place okay. um but you would have instant runoff voting during the primary process and then you would also, also have in the general and then also in the general so um, that would help an independent candidacy in the general like, correct you know a couple times uh, people ran against Slay, like Maddie right. Coleman, as, mm. as an independent, but didn't get taken very seriously. <laughs> right. I mean, it de- it definitely, you know, I think has the potential to allow some, you know, third parties to be a little bit more competitive. I think that there's a couple of other things we can can look at too. Um, you know, in in New York, they have something called the ballot line. Um, and it, it started in New York City, and now it's statewide, where you can run on multiple battle li- bat, uh, ballot lines. Right. So you're a Democrat, um, but you can also run on the working families ticket. You can also run on the Democratic Socialist right. ticket. So you, you can, could be a green, literally. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, as if you go through right. those different party processes and you get right. those And some, you know, some aldermen could finally run as a Democrat and a Republican. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> you got some Republicans <laughs> <Okay>. here. <laughs> And so it, it sets up a system where, where it actually it makes it a little bit easier for voters because then they know, okay, I'm not just voting for the Democrat, but I'm voting for the, the working families Democrat, which means that I know that person is good on labor issues. I know mm-hmm. they're going to be fighting for 15. They're good on bun, you right. know, money and politics, you know, all the things that, that the Working Families Party stands for. And um, so it provides a little bit. I think more nuance, especially in areas where there is a single party that that dictates. Although you, I will say, did very well as an independent, winning your seat. So, I did. yeah. Um, Out of just curiosity, we just uh, had a roundtable with Jason Rosenbaum from St. Louis Public Radio, and he described. I'm just curious to get your take on this. Um, he described kind of the ruling powers of St. Louis regional politics right now as Democrats who are heavily a, a, co- a coalition of people who are affiliated with organized labor. And I'm wondering your take on that. I think that's true. I mean, that definitely organized labor in the Democratic Party historically has been, uh, has had a very strong tie to each other. So, uh, and, and I know that there's particularly at the state level, a number of of people who are affiliated with unions who um, also run as Democrats and are are in our General Assembly. 
So I think that's fair. And that's what you would view that kind of like as, for better or worse, establishment politics of St. Louis City as I don't, being. I mean, I, I think we're seeing divisions even among in, in, yeah. in labor right, right now, right? You you see kind of progressive labor and and institutional labor or what whatever you want to call it. The you know the labor organizations that are supporting you know the fight for fifteen and um, and are are working to organize different sectors of unions, whether it be you know childcare or adjunct professors or or fast food workers. Um, and then you see your more established construction trades, and they're they're just at very different places mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know the trades have had years and years and years of of you know the ability to to develop a strong union and where we're still trying for a lot of the service industry to get them just unionized in the first place right. and and so I, I think there are some divisions um, within the labor movement just like there are divisions within the Democratic Party right. and um, and I think that's you know that's part of any kind of a party that's part of right. any kind of coalition. Right, and nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is, you know, African Americans had to fight to get into these unions, and there were conservative and liberal factions. The differences between IWW and AFL and CIO, it's like everything's more pluralist than we think it is. Right. I mean, it's. And, and, and that's a great thing. I mean, that is the health of our system. It I is, think. but there there has to, especially when it comes to political parties, there has to be the engagement of the voters, um, because the number of times I've knocked doors and people, um, you know, in other areas of the city, and people will say, "Oh, if they're a Democrat, I'm voting for them," and then trying to, you know, explain, well, no, really, the primary is the election, and there's different kinds of Democrats and all of this. People are, just, what, you know, and so I think that. You know, any way that we're we're able to provide more of that voter education um, about the nuance to some of these issues, I think the better. But the central committee doesn't do that. I mean, I I think that what the central committee has done has evolved over yeah. time. You know, the role of committee man and committee woman has they essentially were the constituent service right. person. And um, and and relics of a time in the city where. Up until the 1940s, 50s, and even into the 60s, some of these wards were competitive between the Republicans and the Democrats. Right. I mean, we even had a mm. Republican president on the Board of Aldermen until 1973, Joseph Badaracco. So That's a trivia question. They were, and they were still, and the 16th ward had a Republican alderman until the 80s, the 12th, until very right. recently. It's like, and those committees maybe formed, you know, they had more to do right. in terms of these general elections. Now it's like, well, and so I, you know, I, I think the same is almost happening at the Board of Aldermen, mm-hmm. too. There's um, what does it mean to be an alderman? We have folks on the board who very much see us as constituent service mm-hmm. person, people, and that's that's our role. Um, but I think a lot of kind of the newer crop that is coming in in particular, we see ourselves more as public policy makers in that, you know, if services aren't being delivered in the way that they need to be delivered, you know, I, I can call refuse every day about your trash not being picked mm-hmm. up, but at some point in time we have to address the policy that is making it so that your trash is not getting picked up. Um, and that that's, I think, an, a transition that in, in thought that is happening at the board right, right. now. Speaking of, of time and things we do, you, mm-hmm. you must do things that have nothing to do with politics. Every once in a while. What, what, what <laughs> is something outside of this work that is inspiring to you right now or? makes you happy or something you'd like to be doing 
hobby so, sport i like to run yeah. um i am a runner i can't do it as much as i used to in my 20s my my mm. body just does not <laughs> allow me to run the distances that i used to your legislative um, body or no? <laughs> I mean, both, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> the time constraints of being in office versus, right. you know, gear. Because ideally, they'd both be running long distances, yes. right? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, my so, gosh. So that is something. Uh, the other thing, you know, I enjoy traveling. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really important to me that, that once a year I have that week where I go somewhere and I disconnect from everything. Yeah, and, and you come back and Elliot Davis and is asking a bunch of questions. Uh, no. I, you know, <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, but well, I, I think everybody needs to do that, and we need yeah. to get better what at taking time What was your last trip? Uh, last summer I went to Cabo. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents tend to go to Mexico for about a month every summer, and and I go down and I crash every time that I can. What's the next trip? Yeah. So where do you want to go next? It's it's probably going to be Cabo again oh, this really? year, yeah. just because uh, I think that's where I think that's where they've decided that they're they're spending mm-hmm. some time again. So it's a beautiful area and just very relaxing. So if you could go some anywhere, where would you go? Oh, I give you a break in the time space continuum yeah. where the rest of the world continues on this hypothetical is getting weird but if you could go somewhere <laughs> not miss anything here for like two weeks where would you go you know i think japan mm-hmm. i have always really wanted um to go to japan i i think it's in my 20s for some reason i had this reoccurring dream about me riding a bicycle through japan mm-hmm. um through tokyo at night by myself and like nobody else was there but for some reason just those images have, have always yeah. stuck with me, and I, I've just been very intrigued to to want to go there. When you had that dream, <laughs> where did you see your life in 14 years? <laughs> that was not a part of the dream, oh, yeah. so I really can't comment right. on that. <laughs> but did you see did you see that part of your life, this political life? Did, was mm-hmm. that something you always wanted, or was it something else? You know, I, I've been very politically engaged since I was a kid. I mean, the first time I ever got involved with anything political, I was 10 years old and Bill Clinton was running um, mm. for the first time. And I tried to deviate from that. I, I tried to go to college to be a meteorologist, um, oh. despite uh, what all of my high school teachers said. a little said. bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. All of my high school teachers thought I would go into public policy because mm-hmm. I, I was that activist. If there was something that was wrong, I was there to fight the system and to uh, to try to rectify right. it. You can't change and, the weather, but you can and, change society. Right, exactly. And, and then two um, or three weeks into my freshman year of college was 9-11. Ah, and... Yeah. Um, and I saw some, what I felt like were some very drastic changes in our society mm-hmm. and a rise in Islamophobia, willingness to give up our civil liberties um, in pursuit of safety. And, um, and so I began kind of organizing on, on college campus um, around the Patriot Act, and the rest ended up being history. I ended up being president of College Democrats and... Um, and just from there, continued to dive into politics. And when I moved to St. Louis, dove right into politics as well and just started to get involved at my wow. ward level. So I've always had the bug. Great. And now we just give up our civil Word. liberties to get memes delivered to our phones. Oh, my so. goodness. Well, anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's, 
We're grateful to have you here in the city serving us. We're happy to see what comes next. Yeah. Good luck in this race. Thank you. It's a long one, right? 2019? I know. Remember to vote. Yeah. November 2019. (laughs) Put it in your calendar now. March 2019. I'm so sorry. It's a while off, but you know. And it's it's probably a race the Russians don't care about, so (laughs) your vote might matter. (laughs) Thank you, Michael, for that. Anyway. Well, thanks right. for joining us, Megan. Any Thank parting words or just I appreciate uh, you having me on, and I you know I look forward to being able to to serve the city of St. Louis right. in a larger capacity. Oh, is there a website where people can find out more about your campaign and your platform? It is greenforstl.com, right. and my uh, platform is there. And throughout the campaign, we'll be releasing some different position papers and policy papers. I am a policy wonk at heart, and um, and I'm committed to a very issue-oriented campaign. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, guys, for this edition of the Royale Political Wire. Be sure to listen to us uh, on iTunes and all the various places you get podcasts, and be sure to rate us. Thank you. Yes, Maureen? No. Oh, thank you, Maureen. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Thanks, and Steve. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Bye.